Welcome back to Podcast 99, the podcast where we discuss all things Woodstock 99. I am Ryan Lichten here with Josh Evans and Parks Miller. Uh, today we are going to talk a little bit about the history of Woodstock so we can give you kind of the the origin tale of Woodstock 99 a little bit better uh, because you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. But before we get into that, we need to give a very special... Shout out to Vern Troyer, uh, Woodstock 99 alumni who passed away. Rest in peace, Vern. Um, you know, I just hope that there's step stools up in heaven. Yeah, the good thing about heaven is uh, you don't need step stools because you have wings. That's, that's, fucking, <laughs> that's fucking beautiful, man. Uh, also, another huge update in the personal lives of your Podcast 99 team. Parks Miller had kind of a big weekend for himself. You uh, Tell us who you performed with. Well, my uh, my other group, when I'm not doing this podcast, we uh, performed with Bad Baby of uh, Cash Me Outside fame. So, you <laughs> fame. know, I think God. I think that that may have might have gotten me out of my parents' place, but I'm literally living inside of like a cum drenched sleeping bag right now. Oh, so, yeah, <laughs> uh, sorry, verdict's sorry, still dude. in as to how yeah. successful the show was. We're gonna need but to no, take it was a good the, uh, time. the, it was a good the black time. light to it for sure to get to the bottom of the of the sleeping bag. <laughs> Actually, this episode has a, we're gonna be talking a lot about sleeping bags. Uh, come to think of it, because yeah, the original Woodstock, everyone was kind of camping and sleeping outside, and we're gonna the, the sleeping bags became a problem that uh, you're gonna learn about. So the year is 1969. The city is, I mean, the city of New York, first of all, is in turmoil. Let alone the entire country, civil rights. Women's rights, everything is coming to a head. The Vietnam War, the the draft, all this kind of crazy stuff, all these assassinations, everything, everything from JFK being assassinated, RFK, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. Uh, there was the Texas Clock Tower shooting. There was uh, the Manson murders, which happened weeks before the Woodstock Festival happened. So there was so much going on in the streets that the world needed a moment like Woodstock, or at least what people historically perceive Woodstock to be, but we have found that it was not all just peace, love, and music, as most things in life aren't. Uh, so the festival took place August 15th through 17th. It did go through to the 18th, uh, and that's just due to classic, you know, what we call the Woodstock curse, where just nothing's going to go right. So everyone's going to go on late or not show up, or there's a problem, or they have to shut things down because of weather. Uh, and also, another problem that they had was finding a place for this festival. Uh, so it was held at a guy named Max Yasger's Dairy Farm, about 43 miles outside of Woodstock. Uh, they couldn't actually get permits to throw it there because no one liked hippies. The idea of thousands of hippies descending on your town was a nightmare. And that's not because hippies are, you know, annoying because of the stuff that they say or the way that they smell, like, you know, I think nowadays. But it's because... Hippies back then would, you know, throw rocks at the police and yeah. break into stuff. And they're taking all these new drugs no one knew anything about. And, you know, freaking out. And the news is only showing you, like, the most terrible aspect of this counterculture that really was at its whole about peace. But that message just, you know, gets lost as, as time goes by. Um, so... Actually, to get the permits to throw the festival there, Max Yasger filed for the event permits himself. 
because he knew he would get approved. He had done some other kind of weird events there, nothing of this scale, but so that that just kind of sets it up for you. Also, it was his dairy farm. There was no running water. There was no electricity. There was no phones. All that stuff was going to have to be built in just for this event. So the founders of the Woodstock Festival are Artie Cornfield, Joel Rosenman, John P. Roberts, and Michael Lang, who we know from 99, the mother of Woodstock 99. Yeah, Michael Lang, very cool guy. Whereas Joel Rosenman and John Roberts were Ivy League educated yuppies, both, you know, living on trust fund money, just investing in random businesses. They met each other playing a game of golf at a country club. Uh, So, you know, and that brings me to nowadays when people, you know, like true festival you know, veterans say like, oh, it's it's ruined now by, uh, you know, all these trust fund kids coming in and, and you know, kids like they, they're so disrespectful and they're not here for the music. But that's where festival culture was started with kids with too much fucking money. Yeah. Uh, they, and Roberts was actually the heir to the Polydent Denture Company at the time, too. So Right. And, you know. Over the course of his 20s, I think he was given like several million dollars by his, his family alone. So. Yeah, yeah. When he turned like 21, they gave him a million. Then you turn 25, you get five million. And I mean, you know, people talk about like, oh, they make YouTube money or like, oh, like he's got like rap money. <laughs> like there ain't no money like polygrip, you know, denture money. Change the world. That's where it's really at. Yeah, exactly. Now you can, you know, eat. so they took an ad out in a a local paper together uh, where they described themselves as young men with unlimited capital and they were just looking for people to pitch you know business ideas to them uh anything that might be profitable that really was in in their eyes low risk because like you can't lose money when you just already have it and are always going to have it um, and then you have on the other end of the spectrum, you have Artie Cornfield, who was a successful singer songwriter. He wrote uh, the song Dead Man's Curve. He eventually went on to be the VP of Capitol Records, you know, which is huge, especially during that time. Yeah. And then you have Michael Lang, who, I mean, he opened what? The first the first head shop in Miami. Yeah, Coconut Grove, Florida. Whoa, man. Yeah. So very groovy. He dropped out of NYU very to do this. <laughs> to, to start the head shop. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've heard of people dropping out of college for worse things. And also, I've heard of people going to college for worse things than opening up a head shop in Miami. Like, for fucking sure. Like, yeah, buddy, like, keep painting, you know. But uh, so Lang also, he, he started the Miami Pop Festival, which became a huge cultural event. It, it was around the time of, um, what, what's the, the, the Montreal pop, the, the one that Monterey, the Monterey. Monterey. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Monterey. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was like on that level of, of, you know, respect and, and kind of notoriety within the community that like, Hey, that's the festival to go to. That's some really far out stuff as they would say back then. Uh, I believe 20,000 people went to the last Monterey or Miami pop festival that he, that laying through. Um, and so, they all met through a lawyer also named John Roberts. So I'm just going to call him lawyer from now on because that's going to get fucking confusing. Uh, but he's, you know, he knew the, the hippies from kind of weird things that they had done, like, you know, booking concerts and stuff. They needed a lawyer. And then you had him as kind of the business lawyer for Roberts and Roseman. So he's like, hey, I'm going to hook you up with these two hippies. They have an idea for a recording studio. I think you guys should jump on this. It's going to be really big. And so they meet, and the whole idea was that, yes, they wanted to open up, like, the premier recording studio in Woodstock, New York. That was a very hip town at the time. It's where, like, Bob Dylan was hanging out and Janis Joplin. Um, it, it was just kind of, you know, a safe haven that, that they were going to. So, like, let's build a studio for them. So in order to fund 
this studio rather than just throwing all the money that they already had. I mean, I don't know why. I don't know. They should have just thrown the money in it. It would have been a legendary studio, but instead we have, yeah, they already you know, had so much money. we have this Weird. legacy that ends with Woodstock 99. <laughs> like in, you got to spend to make money. It, I, yeah, exactly. But no, you they wanted invest. to, yeah, they, they wanted to just throw a concert. They, they thought it'd be a better idea because since Lang had done the big pop festival, they're like, Hey, let's throw a giant music festival. We'll use that money to front the studio. Well, that was the start of that too, in some ways. So right. being, being a name on that. No, yeah, Achievement yeah. is something in its own. Well, definitely. But so they came together. They formed what they called Woodstock Ventures, uh, which kind of stayed together as a business up until 99. I mean, it, as far as I know, it's still a, a trademarked business. Uh, who who knows? Maybe in the future they'll throw another one that we'll get to go to or never be invited to ever because of this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, they're not going to want us anywhere 2019. Near. Yeah, baby, bring it back. 40, well, I know that 40 the, years. the gathering of the Juggalos is doing Whoopstock. This year, that's that's the Whoopstock theme is like wood, Woodstock <laughs> theme, yeah, which is which is awesome because they played at, at ninety nine. But I digress. So they had this concert idea. They Roseman and Roberts put up a ton of money for the concert. They also sought out other investors that wanted to get involved. Um, another thing they did was, which is kind of crazy for them and scary because they had never done it. But again, they didn't want to lose their actual money because they were so convinced that they were going to make a ton off of this, that they took a loan out from Citibank. And at the time, you know, 1969, New York City, Citibank, I guess the the banker that they all tell the same story, the banker that they dealt with in his office had a tank of piranhas. And he would like dangle meat into this tank of piranhas like, and you know, you're going to make your payments on time, right, kid? And then, like, feed his piranhas in front of you, and you'd just be like, like, fuck, like, yes, yeah, yes, Mr. Citibank. Uh, <laughs> you know, so there's that whole air to this mafioso kind of, like, money going into it. I don't know. It's That's a weird detail of the story. So uh, the actual attendance of the festival was about half a million people uh, at the end of it, but... Be- days before, about a week before the festival was even supposed to start, they hadn't even put up the barricades to keep people out yet. They were still building the stages. They were still getting electricity laid in. All that stuff, 50,000 people descend on the grounds, and they start setting up camp. And no one knows what to do because now it's time to put up the gates and, and you know set up the ticket counter and how many of these people actually have tickets. And, and you know there's no way to go around to 50,000 people and be like, okay, guys, like, you all need to go line up now <laughs> outside. I know you've been camping for a week and basically you live here, but you need to go outside now. So they were afraid they were going to start a riot because back yeah. then, like I said, hippies were fucking gnarly and they would riot and they would do crazy shit like that, you know, and it wasn't like a Woodstock 99. riot. I think a 69 riot probably would have been worse. Because they would have sent in like troops and it would have been yeah. like a Kent State thing that happened the next year where four students were killed uh, at the college during a protest. You know, it, it would have been, I right. think that would have been like a major tragedy. Uh, so they mm-hmm. didn't. So they just started building the barricades around them. And it's kind of like, you know, what I was talking to you guys about because we've all played shows and shit where like you have the friend that like gets there when you get there or like rides with you so he can just hang out inside until it starts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it brings your uh, your drums in. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So it's like, a free pass. So 50,000 people brought someone's drum in. <laughs> yeah, basically, and just started camping out. And so that so they built the the things around them. And even though that was 50,000 people, they had already sold money in the bank like 100,000 tickets. So they were like fuck it like either way we're gold you know uh and the tickets were you know it was about six dollars and fifty cents for a day pass it was a three-day festival so that's like 44 dollars today 
I, I mean, that's not bad, you know, uh, by any any year standards for a festival of that magnitude. And then the three day pass was 18 bucks. And that's about one hundred and twenty dollars today. Still not bad for a festival yeah. where it's the biggest acts that anyone cool would want to see. You know what I mean? Like the biggest. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah it's insane. And, we're, and we'll talk about the lineup in a little bit. Um, but another problem with the security and everyone getting in was that they didn't want any cops there at all. They thought that the presence of police would kind of send the vibe into a frenzy and all these, you know, young, you know, love children were going to freak out. out. Yeah. On their asset at the side of police and think that you know, the fascists were there and, and blah, blah, blah. So, and, and originally they did have a deal with the NYPD where they were going to have like a certain amount of, of officers there, but then the deal fell through and they both decided, you know what, let's not do that. But what people don't know is that there was a team of 300 plain clothes officers from the NYPD that went to the festival, like kind of unannounced and they were all paid in cash to do kind of like pseudo security like you know like okay like you know you're not really on duty so don't like arrest these fucking people but like if someone you know pulls a gun on someone you know step in yeah kind of a thing really hits the fan kind of thing right so when you don't want police and and you don't want any real form of security what do you do you go to san francisco and you find another group of hippies that are even more far out than the people that you're have you're expecting yeah. to come to the festival and you have them be the security. So they found this group called the Hog Farm. Uh and that was led by uh by Wavy, Wavy Gravy. Gravy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, who has who has a uh, a Ben and Jerry's flavor that's uh, all right, you know. It's no Cherry Garcia, but you know Wavy Gravy is no Jerry Garcia. Uh and and their whole mentality it was a commune you know and then they lived free and they grew their own food and they took tons and tons of psychedelics and back then you know nowadays like psychedelics is like like the gnarliest one someone might have or like is like dmt or something you know and and that's just like adult salvia like and then <laughs> you know don't knock salvia either because that shit will fucking destroy you yeah but yeah <laughs> You could say it was a little more of a wild west of drugs back then. Right. And they had stuff like mescaline and people were able to get peyote and like, like people would take like four day trips. Like, you know what I mean? And they were taking belladonna and like finding shit that grew like Jimson weed and things that are part of the nightshade family. And like some hippies were like going blind. Even Uh, heroin. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, like everything because they're like, oh, poppy, like, you know, because that's the thing with drug dealers, especially big time drug dealers. They're like, oh, you like these cactus? You like peyote? You know what kind of looks like a peyote cactus? An opium bloom. <laughs> and he's like, and you know what you can make with an opium bloom? Some heroin. <laughs> you know, and then and then that starts that. And then it gets dark. And that's when you hit the 70s. But that's that's a whole nother story. So the hog farm, they their job was, yeah, to kind of be security. They also were set up in one of the farmhouses on the property. And it was like a medic tent for people on hallucinogens. It was a bad trip tent. And they said, you you know, they estimate that they helped at least 400 people having bad trips. And uh, and a lot of the bad trips had to do, you know, when you watch the famous Woodstock documentary uh, that we'll talk about, there's a famous brown acid scene where where someone takes the stage to announce that, you know, there's a batch of brown acid going around and don't take it. And if you have, go to the hog farm. (laughs) You know, it's like, can you imagine like taking acid and it's like still been like, you know, 40 minutes, like an hour. It's not really like kicking in that much yet and then someone tells you like if you took that you need to go to this house because it's real bad and like yeah. <laughs> dude, that would, like scary instant- yeah. yeah i would instantly shit my pants and you know cry but uh 
so we're, we're actually going to play a sound clip now of Wavy Gravy and Lisa Law, two members, of, two like leading members of the hog farm that were there on the grounds at Woodstock. And, uh, and also this is going to be preceded by the brown acid announcement that is very important for you to hear. But the, the Wavy Gravy stuff is, is them describing kind of the procedure of helping someone through a bad acid trip. So without further ado, brown acid into Wavy Gravy. The brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. I remember when the first freakout came in. Uh, he's going, Miami Beach, 1944, Joyce. At which time they would walk into the trip tent and somebody would say, what's your name? And he goes, Joyce. I said, no, what's your name, man? He says, Bob. Then I tell him, your name is Bob. My name is Bob. Your name is Bob. And Bob would see that he was in a safe surrounding with people like him, and people were taking care of him. They guided him. Good information if you're watching VH1 and you're ever faced with this circumstance. What's your name and it's going to wear off? <laughs> All right. So, and, and, you know, the hog farm on top of that, I mean, for, first of all, what the fuck? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like talking someone down off of acid right. is like trying to talk someone off of a building in their mind. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that's like, actually yeah. That's but a good point. if I can say something, this concept now at most of these rave music festivals, they have these bad trip tents. So that is right. like a totally yeah. that is something well, that kind of was started there. No, definitely Not just in, like, in the nineties. No, you yeah. would see like the like the pill testing stands. Like if you go to like a really sketchy rave, like on a ranch, like there'll be a place where someone will drop some shit on your pill, and if it's black, they're like, nope, like you got burned. You know what I mean? Like yeah. don't take this. And right. I'm sure most people do anyway. So like, well, there's got to be something in there. You know? <laughs> so crazy. Yeah. So you know, but another thing that they did was eventually, just like at the original Woodstock supplies or at Woodstock '99, supplies ran really low. Uh, and, and, you know, by the second day they were out of food, by this time there's hundreds of thousands of people there traffic going anywhere near that Bethel, which, which is where it was held is just jammed up. I mean, it's jammed up all the way to the city, all, all coming through Canada, everywhere. Everyone is trying to get to Woodstock. Um, right. and so, so they ran out. So the hog farm, they had like barrels of granola that, that they had brought. So they famously did like a breakfast in bed for you know four hundred thousand is what wavy gravy <laughs> yeah, says yeah. like you know he's like a cartoon bear that would get his paw stuck in a honey jar like that's what wavy gravy <laughs> like reminds yeah, he's me like of. a hippie cartoon yeah no totally yeah, yeah but he I is mean, a cartoon yeah <laughs> and, he, and he takes credit for granola introducing granola to hippies so yeah, and that's a big that claim dude. stereotype he's taking credit for it yeah, dude. I mean, back in high school, like when I was, you know, in like a fucking metal band, like we would call the hippies granola kids. Like that was like yeah. our, our our slur. Uh, but now I know that you know words like that aren't okay to use, so I don't use words <laughs> like that anymore. Uh, and and so like I said, the gates were built around everyone, uh, and then they started trying to collect tickets. That is getting fucked up. The gates are. You know, since they were put up in such a rush, people are just tearing them down, holding them down while cars drive over them. Everyone's pulling in their VW vans and and their bugs and all that. Uh, and so they were unable to collect tickets a a after all this, and they just gave up. So in order to save face and not need to put any like real effort into trying to, uh, a talent coordinator named John Morris got up on stage and announces to everyone that they are now attending the world's biggest free concert. And that's where you get 
the legend of Woodstock being this beautiful moment where everyone came together. It's because it had a reputation of being free, but that was kind of just like a latch. Just ever, like they were just trying to be cool at that point. Yeah, they're trying to, to avoid. To they wanted to avoid a, a bad situation altogether. Right. Right. You know? right. So yeah, now uh, we're gonna hear a little bit about the actual music that you know that played and the, and the process of getting like the world's biggest acts to come to this long shot uh, festival. So Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, was well, as you said before, uh, this was famously billed as you know three days of peace, love, and music. And uh, this this set list is pretty outrageous. It's you know some of the it is the biggest acts of that time. You have Jimi Hendrix, you have Grateful Dead, Joe Cocker, Joan Baez, Santana, The Who. Credence Clearwater Revival, who I think released like three albums that year. Jesus. Uh, Jan- yeah, Janis Joplin, Iron Butterfly, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jefferson Airplane. I mean, so many more. I mean, if you turn on any radio station now, like you're probably going to hear at least one or two of these bands at any given moment. Oh, I mean, this completely. is huge. Yeah, definitely. But uh, and the, the other crazy thing is, is like a lot of these bands had to be flown in by a helicopter because of, you know, like he was saying before, also like, a week before the festival, people just started piling in. So all these road, this this like one little highway that led to the like the the festival itself was just completely jammed up. I mean, they were even worried about not getting ambulances through. Like, it just created such a issue for anyone trying to get there. So they had to fly all these people in, which is pretty fucking crazy. Last minute helicopters cannot yeah. be cheap. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Uh, yeah. And I did like, and dude, also just like a couple, Hey man, dude, we got Jimi Hendrix coming. Like we need some helicopters. Yeah, I'd yeah. be like, click. Like, I'm not, like it's a prank call. Like, <laughs> But the money that right. the thing also is like the, you know, it costs about five grand to book most of these bands at that time. And uh, they were actually offering some of these people upwards of like 12,000 to play. And a lot of them, because of like the the circumstances were like we want to be paid as soon as we get there before we even do anything like which yeah, kind of makes sense well yeah i mean yeah, if a, you're flying in a helicopter over like a total yeah, fucking that's shit a, show you have a lot of time to be like there's no way we're getting money for that like yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah like the who they they absolutely refused to play until they got their money and like i mean dude where do you fucking scrape up you know 12,000 bucks to give to the who cash right, right now backstage at a place where everything's falling apart yeah. Well, if Pete Townsend had just smoked a joint, man, maybe he would have chilled out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, he just wanted that money. Yeah, bastard. But getting back to like the set and everything like that, uh, you know, when it all started, it was like three hours behind schedule. And Richie Havens actually opens the concert, and he was supposed to play for only twenty minutes, and uh, he actually went back and forth, but you know, backstage seven different times. They just kept putting him out there like keep playing keep playing keep playing like we don't have just, anyone else yet. They, we don't have anyone else yet like we're afraid that if we don't have music for a, more than 40 minutes or something then people Everyone's are gonna, gonna get restless yeah. and get crazy or whatever so this guy played for like three hours <laughs> <laughs> which is insane yeah I'm no, i don't think i've ever watched anyone play for three hours no oh dude, i mean i just went and saw garth brooks and like i, I had to leave her i mean he was I, he took a lot out of me and I love Garth, but I couldn't stay for the whole thing. I, I bet that motherfucker played for about three hours. I mean, he was... When you saw him? Yeah. Damn. Dude, I mean, by the time we left, he was like already like two hours in, and he's like, I could be here all night! <laughs> like, he's like, I love it! Yeah! Like doing Michael Jackson, like, oh! Up to the skies. Yeah, it was it was insane. But yeah, Richie Havens is no Garth Brooks. <laughs> no. Right. But he does look... I mean, when he walks off stage, he's he came out in this like orange like dashiki thing, and if you watch him like leave the stage, like he's completely soaked in sweat. Like, it, yeah. he, it's... 
He's yeah. there for a long time. <laughs> a hardworking right. man in show, but yeah. Talking about freedom yes, and God knows what else. But, uh, but yeah, so after that, you know, a lot of the bands were asked to play like double sets or they just, you know, kind of the same situation. They were just, they were afraid that if music wasn't going on, then, you know, shit could get crazy, you know? Yeah. But that's the major difference between 1969 and 99 is, is 69 kind of galvanized all these acts while, you know, 99 definitely put a bad taste and every, you know, even oh, to this, yeah, you know, no, it's definitely, def- yeah. it, it kind of destroyed it, you know? Again, yeah, people look at 69, the, the first one, like it was this, I mean, that's in, in any history book that you read, like when you read about, you know, the 1960s in America, there's going to be some mention of the Woodstock Festival. Right. If you read every book about music history, there's like zero mention of Woodstock 99. Yeah. <laughs> like the yeah. amount of research and shit that we've had to dig up for 99 is is insane. So luckily putting this one together wasn't wasn't that bad. But it was surprising to see how big of a shit show 69 actually was, you know, despite its reputation of being so amazing, you know, you don't really think about the mm-hmm. people that had to fucking work there or put it on or pay for it. Yeah. That's the, that's, it. that's the major, that's one of the big differences is like, uh, you know, like, like, like the problems in serious safety concerns, uh, most definitely reflect 99, um, with overcrowding, no security barriers, uh, food and water shortages, electrical shortages, things like that. Um, Joel Roseman actually was like thinking about his next business venture after Woodstock, but was like, actually like scared of being responsible for electrocuting <laughs> 50,000 people. They thought he was going yeah, he thought he was going to go to prison like for manslaughter for like setting up a poor festival cuz then yeah, heavy rains came down like right during the middle of the shit and they're like, "Oh my god, everyone's going to get electrocuted. They're all going to die." Which I mean, fuck. I mean, that would have yeah, been and that insane. and that that's a lot that's of where it gets calls. Yeah, that's yeah, where it gets that's crazy. The thing. There were so many things that could have just gone to total shit. Yeah. But it didn't, you know. Yeah, that's what I was, yeah. it's it's you know, 69, you had a lot more issues behind the stage. You know, and the mm-hmm. crowd was taking complete care of each other and themselves, whereas, like, 99, it's, like, the opposite. Like, yeah, everything backstage. backstage was cool and dandy, <laughs> right. but everything oh. on the floor was oh, wait, just, sorry, did, like, like, the journalist Richard Reeves describes it as the, the he, he, he describes it like the Middle Ages. He's like, you know, you have the, the stage and the behind the scenes being, like, the castle right. and then you have like the right. rainy like half naked crowd being like the peasants and just like, like no like, yeah it's definitely like a camelot situation right but did we mention how uh rosamond and roberts the two guys with the money they weren't at the festival at all they were a mile away in an office yeah they were yeah. they were in new york and they're just hearing these reports of how <laughs> all these logistics yeah and they're on the phone with they're on the phone so with have, the, with the governor of new york from them Right. Yeah, they're on the phone with the governor of New York at the time. Uh, that he was threatening to send in the national guard because of you know these electrical yeah. shortages and the amount of people and the fact that it started raining and well, and there was no you know, real cops there to tell yeah, them what's going yeah. on. So they just see like this fucking pilgrimage of hippies and all the people that make you uncomfortable if you're like a older fucking you know World War II vet like era you know kind of kind of person you know just like an old hard ass or or just a small town you know lady that grew up in the in the 40s and 30s now you got all these hippies descending on your town like i don't know what do we do do we send in the national guard do we kill them i don't know like you know so they're yeah. they're freaking out and yeah they was about to send them in but they they talked them down they're like listen yeah, they pulled back yeah they're like chill out we got this it's fine there hasn't been any you know mishaps or fights or anything like it, it's it's all good so yeah he, they, they they called off the national guard which was like a last minute emergency yeah yeah and then you know just to kind of 
skip you know ahead from you know beginning to end like the festival ends with you know Jimi hendrix's famous performance which we all know about and that took place at 8 a.m uh that monday morning and uh, it was more of yeah. a wake-up call for those like still on the grounds that morning he was actually supposed to play like what like that night like midnight he was supposed or to, like, something headline yeah, Sunday, yeah 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 i mean imagine imagine like jay-z at a concert and he's five hours six hours behind <laughs> it gets pushed back to 8 a.m it's like all right jay-z you still gotta play and he's gonna no way Fuck. in hell would he play at 8 a.m yeah no yeah that's oh, crazy my God. eight hours late yeah hey garth you know? would do it yep uh, that's all i'm saying i'm just saying you know jimmy hendrix no Garth Brooks. Hey, he <laughs> yeah, but it is it is an iconic. He did do it. No, yeah, you know? he he did do it. No, and it's amazing and it's incredible. And when you see the footage of it, it's like you feel like you're there. Like the grain of it, everything is amazing. It uh, actually looks a lot better in the in, at that time. You know, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yeah, definitely. It looks so like, cool. Yeah. And it's like a victory. It's like it's like the last guy alive on the battlefield playing like the fucking trumpet. You know what I mean? And then like, you get the national yeah. anthem. You yeah, know, like the yeah, yeah. The, like it, it's it's a real big moment but at the same time that that's happening and the same time that roseman and roberts are in this office freaking out you have the two guys on the ground laying in, in cornfield and Artie cornfield is freaking the fuck out he's having <laughs> yeah. a full-blown panic attack cannot be consoled and so what does someone do to help him here's a capsule full of mushrooms and and they don't tell him <laughs> that that's what it is and so he takes it so now he's like full-fledged panic attack i'm gonna go to jail i lost everything i'm ruined oh my god i'm on mushrooms i've never done mushrooms and and he's really freaking out but he was a smart guy he didn't he didn't go down to the hog farm for help no he he went and got and got actual doctors <laughs> to, good, to, to good help call. him and uh they pumped him full of uh, uh thorazine which was like a cure-all at the time for shit like that and then uh and then he was fine but yeah, I think when when what when they when it was all said when, and done. Yeah, yeah, the, the, it was a commercial disaster for sure. the The budget was about three point four million four million dollars, and they lost around two million outright. Just, yeah, like, like just on top of that. So yeah. like they didn't make that back, and they lost two million on top. Um, but the the saving grace was the fact that it was made into a movie. Yeah, 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 award winning <laughs> documentary. No, uh, yeah, the, the Woodstock documentary was that that was something that they had set in place during the planning of the festival. They had approached different film studios. I believe Warner Brothers is the one that picked it up, mm-hmm. and they had told them like, "Hey, it's a fifty-fifty shot. Uh, you guys come and film this, and you'll yeah, either because, have." Yeah, well, because documentaries weren't like a big thing then, so a lot of people were on the fence about it to begin with. Right, and, and, like yeah, 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 and concert films and, and like kind of more like you, you know, but they knew that young people were gonna want right. were gonna want this. But you also, know like, I mean? do you like yeah, like Ryan was like it's 50 50 like you're either gonna have like the greatest concert film ever or you're gonna have the greatest disaster film of all time right and and that's what they told them and they're like eh, sounds good to me so they fucking filmed the whole thing and then later uh when when it came time to try and settle all this money loss that they they basically sold the rights to the film uh for a million dollar advance which kind of got them out of a bunch of Mm -hmm. other holes yeah um along with you know a, a ton of other there's a whole big list of aftermath you know negativities that uh, we're going to get into parks is actually going to uh let us know about some more of that but what happens after woodstock after the smoke clears what what are we looking at smoke clears so one of the first things is michael lang claims that as he was leaving the grounds he saw this giant peace sign constructed out of garbage and that kind of (laughs) became (laughs) I mean, in the way he tells crafty it, it's really beautiful, um, and it's this like total hippie moment. Um, but we 
we're going to find out that this this garbage peace sign is going to appear at later festivals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's the thing about hippies, too. It's like, like that's hippie shit. Like, putting, like grabbing garbage and putting it in a peace sign. It's like, it's beautiful. <laughs> like, only a fucking yeah. hippie. All right. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Again, I digress. I digress. Right, right. Um, so there was over 80 lawsuits, uh, mostly from the farmers whose farms were directly affected by the festival. Uh, because, yeah, there was a, a massive amount of trash. Uh, the the land itself was destroyed. Uh, Governor Rockefeller uh, had to declare the spot a disaster zone. Jesus. Uh, after um, they, the Woodstock um, crew, they had 37 rental cars that just went completely missing. <laughs> yeah. Which, again, <laughs> see, but at the same time, I, I love this shit. How do you shit, fuck that like, up? How can you just... Do that. that sounds like an inside you know, job. It's just kind of like, whoops, man, we just lost a bunch of cars. But dude, it's all good, man. Dude, cars it, are just a thing. Yeah, a thing things. that some other person decided that they needed. <laughs> so they didn't just go missing. Like some fucking acid out hippie like took those cars. Um, but yeah, so there was but that's uh, the a long walk, bags. man. There was thirty thousand sleeping bags were left. But I mean, this is standard stuff now. I actually volunteered a cleanup crew at Bonnaroo one year, and I mean, the amount of trash that is left at any given music festival is this much. They just know how to dispose of it better. But yeah, thirty thousand sleeping bags. That's you know, like something that would happen after a disaster, like a natural disaster yeah. or something. Yeah. Like yeah. you don't want to reuse a sleeping bag you found on the ground after three days. Ugh. So um, there was. Two fatalities. There was an overdose on heroin, and this other guy was sleeping underneath a tractor, and the tractor uh, ran over him. So, <laughs> maybe he wasn't sleeping. Uh, maybe he was, like, digging for granola. Yeah, or maybe it was suicide <laughs> by tractor. Like, he's just like, God, like, you know, uh, the hogmore wine was it. too long. I'm freaking out. I'm going <laughs> to stick my head on his I just saw a crazy fucking video of right. a guy committing suicide by uh, jumping. Like, he's, like, crouched down, and when this bus pulls up, he, like, just sticks his head under the wheel and it pops his head like a grape. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So God. you know, not saying it was like that. I don't want to you know trash the Ooh. memory of the of the guy that didn't die of heroin at Woodstock. <laughs> but, right. <laughs> you know, and props to everyone else that for not dying of heroin either. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. glad it was just one. Right. You know. Uh, it's, it's still pretty good. There there are claims that there also was a child born. Um, I think it's. Hard yeah, to I saw that. Totally that verify same this. Baby but... was on the cover of the Nevermind. Well, they were album. saying that this one lady was saying that like <laughs> there was no like record of any child being born like that day or something in that town. Right. So they're like, for all we know, like this could be a person walking around with no birth certificate, which I, like I don't a, believe. Like a Terminator, like sent yeah, here from no, Woodstock. <laughs> it also, I mean, that that kind of little tidbits those play into the the myth of ni- of sixty nine. Sure. Oh, completely. Because, yeah. The biggest thing about 69 is that ultimately the way it's been remembered is seen as this like huge high point for the youth of the 60s. And well, it uh, was. Like one of the one of those famous quotes is that or not a quote but just how many people later say that they were at Woodstock 69 even though they weren't, you know? Right. And uh or what is the thing? It's like if you remember Woodstock, you weren't. You weren't really, really there. there. That's yeah. that's the quote, right? Um, so I say yeah, that about any like... bar I go to. <laughs> 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 like if I don't but get, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's just seen. It's 
and again, we don't need to harp on it. Everyone knows what Woodstock 69 is. Yeah. But we're just trying to, you know, the people that were involved in making it, they did stumble. Like, it could have gone down as a total disaster. And the fact that it did become this cultural thing, that is going to plant the seeds for, you know, why you would want to do it again, you know? Yes, definitely. Because it really was a big deal. No, yeah, totally. Um, and and you can even hear that like in and all the even the reports at the time when like, you know, the reputation of it locally like while it was going on the townspeople, you know, there's tons of footage of them being like, "Well, I don't know about these hippies and blah blah." blah. But then when they leave, they're like, "They were so great and and you know, they came yeah, to the diner yeah. and, and I sure love them. I'd have them back any day." And and mm. you know, that like we're going to play a sound clip here now where it, it's a it's a local news anchor on the grounds of Woodstock 69 kind of summing it up. And he kind of says it perfectly. So that's why I, I want to play it. Uh, so let's give yeah. that a, a listen really quick and then afterwards we're going to hear a clip of Michael Lang after Woodstock 99 with what he has to say about that. And those mm-hmm. two descriptions together, I think paint the complete picture of why we are doing this, you know, podcast. And that's right. going to be a question that we're going to keep trying to answer every episode Absolutely. is why are we doing this? Cause I still right. get that from people when I tell them what I'm up to. Uh, so Let's here we the, go. This is the local, the local news. Yeah. The, the clip from 69, the local news anchor giving his summation. It'll be two or three days before all the people leave the peace and quiet of the Catskill Mountains. Despite the problems, and there were many problems, though they were not as great as many people believed, this weekend says a lot about the youth of America. Many said they learned a lot about themselves and learned a lot about getting along together and priorities. And for most, that alone makes it all worthwhile. Hmm. And so now we have... Michael Lang talking about what he thought of Woodstock 99. And I think you'll see there's a little bit difference in tone here. Uh, So let's give that a go. Legacy of 99 is going to be difficult to call at this point. Certainly is reflective of the times. The things that have been happening in some of the high schools around the country can't go unnoticed. And that's an element in our society. But I think the vast majority of of this generation is is, uh, a very positive one. We're entering into a new cyber universe that, that is really going to be run by these kids. You know, I hold a lot of hope for that. Yeah. So yeah. obviously, Whoa, very, I, I do yeah. want to say I want to say something about the Lang clip, and it. I think when you really look at the aftermath of '99, I think he's still trying to sugarcoat it. Um, in yeah, his well, description it's his '99. He's like, yeah, it's like Ted Bundy's mom that was like, no, like, oh, just please don't execute it. Like, you know, it's like the whole time, just like <laughs> no matter what happens, like, no, but it's Woodstock, man. Like, it's still right. Woodstock. It's Woodstock, like, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, Woodstock and, has you know, its own it, identity. Completely. It is a state of mind. It's a, it's a world on its own. I mean, during that weekend, that was like the third largest, you know, considered to be population wise, the third largest city in like the state of New York. You, you know what just I mean? Just for those days. Just for those days. Yeah. Like there was more people mm-hmm. there than like almost anywhere else in the entire fucking state. Like that's crazy. But going yeah. back to what you were saying about, yes, that spawns the kind of idea to try and recreate that. And that is that's what I think starts what you know we call the Woodstock curse. Uh, and, and the first time you see the Woodstock curse come into play isn't technically a, a Woodstock festival, but it was marketed as the Woodstock of the West Coast, and uh, it's, it's notoriously known as Altamont. Um, so that, that was held on December 6th, mm-hmm. 1969 uh, at Altamont Speedway. Um, but Yeah, think- actually, this is interesting, too, is Michael Lang uh, actually played a big part in uh, it 
being there. Uh, it was originally supposed to be at uh, Sears Point Raceway, which is like a a road track for all you NASCAR fans out there. Um, yep. But he actually was in charge of, of the last minute switch between Sears Point and Altamont Motor Speedway. So maybe Michael Lang is the curse. Because Altamont <laughs> doesn't go well at all. Uh, what happens is is they promoted it strictly as a, as a free concert, just trying to kind of grab a little bit of that glory for themselves. You know, uh, the, the main band heading it up was the Rolling Stones, but, you know, Santana played that as well. Flying Burrito Brothers, Jefferson Airplane, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Grateful Dead. Uh, although Grateful Dead dropped off of the bill last minute because they kept seeing increasing violence happening within the venue. And that's because just like at the original Woodstock, which Altamont was trying to imitate, they didn't want any actual police presence there so they hired the hell's angel which is not a fun wavy gravy led hippie comedy. (laughs) (laughs) this at the time was a bloodthirsty gang of motorcycle riding bandits who were taking speed and like killing people (laughs) like you know and that's like them pretty viciously yeah with pool cues and chains kill someone yeah Yeah, if you Mm. watch give me the give me shelter Documentary. Well, that's another yeah, thing. They're like, oh, let's make a documentary about this too. And they, it's 50 50, baby. They got the disaster mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. You know, they get stabbed. Yeah. 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 The, the, the Hells mm-hmm. Angels eventually, you know, they say that, that he kicked over one of their motorcycles or, or what have you, but the crowd was just getting rowdy. It, you know, it's free and everyone's coming in there. And, and it was, you know, Northern California, everyone was was piling in there. So things got crazy. And the Hells Angels, they got paid in beer. They were paid $500 (laughs) worth of beer to to go there because they said, hell, the Stones are playing free beer will be there and and so they fucking show up and they start getting really crazy and yeah they stab a young man named meredith hunter uh and and there was also three other deaths there two were part of a hit and run accident that happened uh on the grounds and then another one was a drowning where there was a nearby what? canal that someone wandered off from the festival they said it's lsd induced and, and he tried to Ooh. swim in this like unswimmable canal and drowned to death uh and this is also reported this is going to blow your mind four births Jeez. One fucking day. Oh. One fucking day. All these pregnant women thinking it's a good idea to go to a concert where Hell's Angels are security. Like, I love it. Like, the man, that's wild. You gotta go shit. see the Stones. Yeah, you, yeah. you gotta maybe, have. Maybe Mick Jagger had something to do with guitar. that. Yeah, all these premature births, just like dude, they could not get no satisfaction from that. So obviously, you know, my money was was you know not something that was made there either. Uh, so Altamont and, and is also considered you know. The, the anti-Woodstock, because that marks the what, what is known as, in, in certain very eccentric books, the wilting of the flower children, uh, where things start turning dark, mm. and now the drugs are taking effect, and now people are starting to take advantage, and, and the original message that you saw at the start of the decade is now over. And another major figure that plays into that is uh, Charles Manson and his family, who were arrested yep. for the murders shortly after the Altamont Festival. So December was just like hell month, last month of the fucking decade, and everything that you guys loved is now shit. Uh, and so that brings us to the very forgettable Woodstock 79 yeah. festival, right? <laughs> uh, an, yeah. Another just grab at, at straws at, at whatever Woodstock 69 was. Um, so, I mean, and I don't know how much you guys know. I mean, we, we not. Yeah, a, yeah, there isn't really much to. There's not I, much. I, I was having a hard time finding anything. Not any, but you know, just 
anything interesting. Yeah, like the most we, the most we've learned is, is that, and 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 I've seen differing reports on this. Again, seventy nine is not an easy thing. <laughs> to Eighty nine is about. easier to find stuff on. It, yes, it, and, and we will get there yeah. very shortly because I hate seventy nine. Uh, so it took place on September eighth, nineteen seventy nine, at the Par Meadows Racetrack in New York. Although I've also seen reports that it took place at Madison Square Garden, but it, it was a ten year anniversary. No one yeah, no one remembers, no one gives a shit, and it's the 70s, so most of the hippies that, like, would have gone to Woodstock now are living, like, kind of like Jenny and Forrest Gump, like how she travels through, like, all these different well, trends. They're all in Studio 54 She's now listening to the shit. doors, like, walking on the edge of the thing after shooting up, like, about to jump off a building. That's where the hippies are now, and they're like, oh, great, like, we can go to Woodstock again. <laughs> so they, they, they show up, and, uh, and it's one of many events that were billed as Woodstock... 79 the 10 year anniversary there was a few other ones across the country but this was the biggest one it had some people that played at the original festival like country joe and the fish and uh you know canned heat uh steven stills came out and they would all play a set and then they kind of got together for a big jam uh you can find bootlegs of some of these like floating around on youtube and stuff some of the performances um but even that one being a one-day festival sold at a real venue had problems because a thousand campers descended upon the city the day before it started and everyone thought like holy Holy shit, like in the middle of town, we're gonna have. Yeah, but like, from experience, a thousand people, that should have been a fucking cakewalk, right? Well, yeah, but these aren't the same people throwing it. Okay. Like, you know what I mean? And and this isn't a festival setting. They're like, this is in, like, this is seating and, and shit. Weird. You, you know what I mean? Uh, So, yeah, that like freaked everyone the fuck out. And I doubt a thousand of them had, had money for tickets, you know? Um, but <laughs> it was fairly mellow and everyone had a decent time. Uh, and that brings us to 89, which is actually known as the Forgotten Woodstock, which was more like what, like a like a giant drum yeah. circle or uh, or or it was like a, it was a giant like I would describe it as it looked like a fucking fish or like widespread panic parking lot like before the show. Yeah, <laughs> it just no, looked, yeah, like, like a tailgate or the something. whole thing was a tailgate. Yeah, and and I don't know. I mean, Parks, you ever did you you seem like the jam band? show going to guy out of the three of us but i don't want to because i know that josh actually has been to the jam band or or just one (laughs) no i've never i've never seen like one of the major jam i mean i went to bonnaroo you know but i never i guess i saw fish (laughs) oh dude i'm talking fucking whippets in the parking lot i don't think i actually no see i i remember that all right so yeah like when we say you know widespread panic but the 80s is when you were having the deadhead revival well you just you just have like people selling their shit and then there's like a nitrous tank maybe and then there's you know someone someone's got him someone's got some tie-dye like it's just a yeah it's just a a disappointment for what it sounds like it's like an outdoor like Take all the good stuff out of a Spencer's gifts and put it outside. Yeah. <laughs> well, this yeah, stuff start, and, and, kind and, of started in the eighties when people started really following the dead around. Right. That's when the yeah, that was a big was thing. Still, yeah, because yeah. they didn't have a Woodstock anymore. You know what I mean? Like that whole like you had to latch on to the bands that still kind of created that mentality for you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that kind of environment is not found anywhere, but these kinds of shows now. Yeah. Like a grateful dead fish, you know, widespread panic, uh, string cheese incident, like that kind of music just creates that parking lot party atmosphere. Uh, and, 89 Woodstock 89 was only that there was no bands that were booked to play it was only promoted by word of mouth it was held in like a big field and everyone just kind of knew where to go uh and uh, it's estimated that there was about 350,000 people that came to that uh just to Jeez. camp for like a week and chill and hang out and we found a video 
on YouTube uh, where it's like half an hour of yeah, a guy's... Yeah, it's worth a watch. You know, it, it's definitely worth it. Just, you know, Woodstock, you got to do a little bit of digging, but it, it pays yeah. off because it's half an hour of a guy's handheld camera footage and he's just walking through and there was a stage and everyone that came was welcome to come up and play and they were encouraged and it was like a giant open mic. But one person that came on that kind of like, I guess, brought down the party was a local uh, uh, hotel manager. And, and he and he gets on. Is that stage. the guy that was like bitching at the crowd at one point and was like, "We set all this up for you." Yeah, like, yeah. He, like he, he's he using all, all the wrong the, words and talking like, about the permits. They're like, "We cleared the permits for you to do this." <laughs> yeah, like all yeah. Mistakes. He comes up in a so suit first of all. Big mistake. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he didn't get it. Yeah, no, he didn't get it. Yeah, this guy yeah. goes like khakis, like navy blue fucking sports coat, and he's just like, "Hey guys, I'm from you know hotel blah blah blah, and yeah, I I got the." permits cleared for you so you could have your party and you know we're having a melanie come down and play melanie performed at the original woodstock she's amazing but that's pretty sick she didn't go on to have the kind of like huge mainstream notoriety that some of the other bands that that played did so that was kind of like like it really comes off like a like a hotel casino kind of billboard that you'd see on the, on the side where it's like tonight yeah, it's like an ad. melanie <laughs> yeah you know? yeah like and everyone's booing this guy and he's just like okay okay and like walks away and then like the footage just goes along like on a right. walk basically uh mostly focusing on people like what they're selling it's a lot of glass pipes uh it's a lot of yeah hemp stuff and, yeah. and face painting and and people are there with their kids henna yeah henna stuff yeah i'm sure there's like gnarlier things happening but like they're not gonna film that um and then there yeah. was actually actually there was two I, I don't want to say performers, but definitely influencers of Woodstock 69 at 89. And it was Wavy Gravy. Wavy Gravy showed up, of course. But he even if he wasn't at the original Woodstock, that's something that he fucking probably would have gone to. Uh, and then Jimi Hendrix's father, Al Hendrix, came and spoke for, for, for a little bit. Um, but that's really the last stop before hell, because that takes us to the year 1994 for the 25th anniversary of the Woodstock Music Festival, which was held in Saugerties, New York, about Ooh. 10 miles outside of Woodstock. Yes. Uh, and it was, yes, yeah, for the 25th so this is the anniversary. Second official Woodstock. This yeah. is the actual second, the second official, official Woodstock. Yes. And, and uh, Rosamond Roberts cool. were, were there with Lang that Cornfields out of Woodstock Ventures. But they they came together and, and put on 94. And that is when John Scher, who last episode we described as kind of our man in the tower, evil mayor guy. That's when they meet and, and he comes in. So now it's a team of four again and they're throwing 94, which was fucking killer uh it did have problems no doubt uh like the simple like simple logistic stuff like you know there's an estimated three hundred and fifty thousand people there less than two hundred thousand people paid to go there uh ticket sales were about one hundred and eighty thousand, uh which is still massive but yeah that many more people getting in for free which of course is you know original 69 problems 99 problems yeah. you run out of water you run out of food you run out of bathrooms uh, all, all that kind of shit um and, and, you know, that also introduces the, the concept of, like, the extracurricular activities at the festival. Like, there was a virtual reality tent, and there was safe sex education <laughs> booths. Yeah, no, and, like, you know, again, face <laughs> painting and, and shit like that. And, and, you know, activist bumper stickers and all kinds of d different yeah. shit that you still see sold at festivals today. But that's kind of, like, really the start of it. Because they were trying to make money. They're like, let's sell fucking vendor tents. Let's get this thing sponsored. Because John Scher had a history of being a very successful promoter and, and you know totally. while, while Lang you know had managed like for the last couple decades before that he had managed you know Joe Cocker and, and did a bunch of other you know stuff uh, in, involving music but John Cher was just always on top of his game 
Uh, he, he didn't have any money losing moments than, that he became a legend for, you know, or anything like that. He was just a good music showbiz guy at, at his core. Uh, so, you know, they put a heavy regulation on food and drink, so you couldn't bring in any outside food or drink. Uh, that's a, a running theme that we'll see at, at our final destination, which is Woodstock 99. Uh, and, you know, they of course, though, the, the fences were just chain link fences. So now all these people are sneaking in with the prohibited items that included alcohol and, and of course, drugs. But booze was the main thing they were seeing snuck in. People were like coming in through a, a hole in the fence, bringing in like 30 bricks of beer and, you know, big handles and selling drinks on the premises, like from the campsite. And then people were also bringing in supplies and opening up their own little shops out of their, out of their campsite. Um, but musically and historically it, it's viewed as a pretty good time. I mean, the bands that played yeah. were pretty amazing. Yeah. It was definitely remembered as a, a high point in alternative music. Um, the set being people like, you know, green day, nine inch nails, shell crow, who also played 99, Collective Soul, Candlebox, Violent Femmes, Aphex Twin. Fucking crazy. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Cypress Hill, Henry yeah. Rollins, Primus, Salt and Peppa, Metallica, Aerosmith, The Cranberries, Bob Dylan, Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, who also played 99, Melissa Etheridge, Santana, a bunch more. Um, this is where like Mudstock kind of started. Right. Yeah. For the during, most part. During like, Green Day's set, they, they kind yeah. of egged on the crowd to throw mud and. That's like a legendary. I mean, yeah. you would see that that's, on MTV that's for the, years to come. That's like, the thing about '94, at least for me, is like the, the the only two that I really remember is like the Green Day set because of the mud, probably. Right. But also like Nine Inch Nails set, which you know they covered themselves in mud. Yeah. And they had like it, you know they played at night and it was yeah. really dark yeah. and that their like stage setup like looked really good. No, it's like, insane. It it's actually, really weird yeah. how like the production seemed a lot more like. That leaned a little more towards the performers for '94 than it did in '99, where it was just like the same right. backdrop, the it, it same was very shit. Lackluster. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it pisses you off. Like when you watch, like you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, Corn at 1999's Woodstock is a fucking amazing set. But when you watch the Nine Inch Nails '94 Woodstock, it's set, amazing. It, it's like a whole other fucking thing. It, it's like the production of the lights and everything and the sound. And I mean, yes, like they're just a badass band that like has withstood the test of time. But that has nothing to do with it. It's literally the way it looks that makes all the difference in the world. That it almost makes me mad that '94 yeah. was so much better and it happened for it's like why, why did it get worse it was, <laughs> like yeah. after this? And it, it didn't really have to happen, you know. Well, it was 20, we have the 25th some fifth anniversary, we? you know. We have yeah, the- <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we have to. Well, there's, a, you know, you got to get that fucking money, bro. You but know? this might be the last appearance of the 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 trash peace sign. Yeah, yeah, th- there was a trash peace sign left there, just like at '69, and that was on like MTV reports too, like when you or in news reports where it's like a a familiar symbol, like blah blah blah, like and then they'll put them together, you know, <laughs> yeah. and show you them back to back. Uh, I'm just gonna go ahead and spoiler it right now. At 99, <laughs> the only thing that was left was a gigantic trash made money sign that was like embedded in the chain link fence, made completely out of garbage, a giant money sign, yeah. and like amazing, first of all. But you know, so 94 though, it, it wasn't all amazing shit. You know what I mean? There was bad times, uh, and and it had a kind of aftermath of its own. Right. So you have this uh, pretty big quote from John Scher, the new promoter, saying, calling 94 the ultimate test of the young people of this generation. Uh, And he was probably referring to, yeah, there was still some pretty intense conditions and just sort of the general chaos that sort of accompanies a music festival. Um, But again, with 94, 
it was seen, uh, at least again on the outside, as a pretty big success with these iconic performances. But the guys lost money yet again. So there was this attitude like, never again. We're never going to lose money again on this. And this is what really is kind of, I would say, the last crucial element in turning 99 into what it was. Because 94, you had these commercialized elements. You started having sponsors. You started just kind of trying to have money sort of regulate things more. But if you're still losing money, you've got to ramp up. You've got to ramp up the the money, right? (laughs) Actually, make ramp up the money, baby. Show me the money. Yeah, yeah. Very nineties. Yeah, yeah. I think that I do think that that is going to play a huge element because it's like we did it again with these nineties bands. We had some aggressive musical rock acts, but we got to make some fucking dough. So that. I think we're going to explain in a bunch of different ways how those decisions, the the, mo- the monetary decisions, uh, right. definitely led to a lot of uh, the problems that arrive in '99. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's a, it's the Titanic mentality. It's like, man, that last cruise ship was like so successful, but shit, man, all that food we gave them was so much money. Like, we gotta we gotta cut some corners here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They don't care if the mm-hmm. ship actually makes it home <laughs> as much as they're concerned right. about not losing money. Hope the uh, check clears. Right. So hopefully now you're ready uh, for 99. We, we, we've taken you through the complete timeline of Woodstock history uh, from conception to birth to troubled, you know, toddler years into the early teens. And now we have the ready to go to college, total fucking shithead, Menendez brother teenager <laughs> that is Woodstock 99 and that is where we're going to end today uh, next episode we're going to go deep into the, the, the logistics and the background of Woodstock 99 where it was at what they were eating where they were taking shits uh, all that kind of stuff what they were buying how much did shit cost when did things start all that that's what we're going to cover we have we're going to uncover some great research material i have an authentic woodstock 99 staff handbook with me uh now i i carry it with me everywhere i go i have a stack of newspapers so tune in next time where we bring you into woodstock 99 thank you Podcast 99 would like to thank Beyond Hope Studios. Without them, this podcast would not be possible. We'd also like to thank Gray Holger at Contradict Sound for helping us so, so, so much. Also, Toby Black for being our man behind the scenes. If you know anyone that went to Woodstock 99, you yourself went to Woodstock 99, played at Woodstock 99, or worked at Woodstock 99, please contact us at podcast99official at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at podcast99. Thank you, and we'll see you at Woodstock.